Hello everyone and welcome to the Interaction Lab podcast, brought to you by City Interaction Lab and the Centre for Human Computer Interaction Design at City University of London. I'm Stuart Scott, Interaction Lab Manager, and in this podcast I'll be speaking to experts in HCI and related fields from academia and industry to provide food for thoughts for all the friends of the centre. Today we're speaking to Steve Bromley, User Research Lead at REACH PLC, who's literally written a book on building user research teams and will be sharing insights based on his experience. Thanks a lot for joining us, Steve. Thanks, Stuart. Um, yeah, I mean, it's great to get you on uh, the show, and I look forward to hearing all your insights. Um, do you mind starting off just telling us a bit more about yourself, like give us a bit of an introduction? Yes, of course. So um, uh, my name is Steve Bromley. I am a user researcher. I've been a user researcher for about 10 years now. Uh, I currently work for a company called Reach, who work in media, uh, but before before that, I've had a long history of working in some different industries. Uh, most notably, I spent a long time working in games user research. Uh, I'm still heavily involved in the games user research community, so I run a mentoring scheme to help people join and become games user researchers. Uh, but I'm also very excited about some of the challenges about building new user research teams, which is one of the things I think we're going to chat about today. Brilliant. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's great that you've had such a varied career and 10 years is quite a long while these days, isn't it? It's sort of, you know, there's quite a few people that just come in like fresh. So it's, it's good that you've got that pedigree to go behind what you're saying today. Um, do you mind telling me more about what you do at Reach PLC? Yes. So Reach is one of those companies that are everywhere, but no one's ever heard of them. Um, they are a publisher. So they publish some newspapers and some magazines and some websites. Um, they're actually the largest uh, paid-for publisher in the UK. Paid-for meaning they're not the BBC, which is obviously a free publisher and larger. Okay. Um, so they own many national newspapers, and a lot of the local papers near where people live are also owned by Reach. Um, they also have some other things, like they've got, they run a social network. They have some other spin-off sites. Uh, they tell me that all in all, 40 million UK adults use one of their websites each month, which I think is a lot of the population. And as a consequence, as a user researcher, there's a lot of variety in the types of people who we need to research with and the types of research challenges we need to support these audiences. Crikey. I mean, uh, yeah, I didn't realise there was such a big organisation. I mean, to be fair, this morning I was checking a news article and uh, this uh, cookies message popped up from Reach saying, uh, mm. do you want to accept these cookies? And like afterwards, I was just like, Oh, I'm speaking to Steve in a minute. He works at Reach. And now, now that you've mentioned that, just give me complete context because it was a newspaper's website and I didn't realise that this uh, organisation owned newspaper. So, I mean, it, it's, it like, um, it's like confirmation bias, isn't it? Where you don't notice it until someone has mentioned it and then you'll notice it everywhere after, after someone has noticed it. Yes, basically after this interview, everyone that listens will then notice reach everywhere. They'll, they'll see the, the reach <laughs> of reach and uh, be able to see what, how they're involved in their lives. Um, but it does sound like quite an exciting organisation to work for because of the breadth of, um, you know, content and different people that you're reaching out to. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it, I'm guessing it must be quite a challenge. Uh, yes, I think what's been interesting. So when I joined in my role, I was the first user researcher they had. And the brief was start a new user research team because they didn't have an in-house user research team and didn't particularly incorporate evidence-based decision making into how they were uh, developing their software. So, or at least that's perhaps unfair, evidence based on qualitative research. They have a very strong analytics team, a very strong quant team. Um, 
and so the challenge is obviously helping the organization understand how research can help them develop these websites understand the breadth of their audience and the context in which people were uh, using news uh, i'm sure you yourself when you're reading news you're often not sat at a desktop computer at home you might be on your phone or you might be traveling and there's lots of contextual elements such as poor internet signal or other loud people on the train that might make your news consumption experience not how a developer might imagine it to be. And so it's really interesting and exciting to help teams understand why people consume news and apply that to the development of features or different parts of their websites or other software, uh, which has been nice. Well, I mean, yeah, like you say, this whole contextual part is really important for people to understand um, because, yeah, you could just imagine this, people are reading it in isolation in a bubble, but in fact, there's a lot more going on. And I, I mm -hmm. find it with a lot of news sites, there's so many adverts on them these days that you actually can't get to the content because the adverts are taking over most of the page and also the bandwidth. Um, so yes. I, up, I ended up using an ad blocker the other day just to sort of see what would happen. And it made the download speed a lot faster. Uh, but then some sites actually stop you from accessing their content if you use an ad blocker. And it's all a bit of a sort of chicken and egg situation. But, um, and I think that's one of the other major challenges that all news organisations probably face at the moment. Um, in the past, people would buy newspapers and yeah. they'd be so adverts in the newspapers, and that was a sustainable model of funding news. I think one of the challenges that not exclusively reach the whole industry have is these days people aren't that interested in paying for news. Uh, you, the type of news that you might find in a national paper there are five other national papers that are all covering the same thing. And yeah. so it's very difficult to get people, convince people to pay for it unless you're doing something unique with your editorial angle. Um, and the alternative that people explored so far is putting advertising on it. But obviously that has a huge impact on the experience of users. People aren't fans of advertising and it can severely impact the reading experience. So finding either the appropriate balance between adverts and content or alternative ways of making people see the value of news and deciding to pay for it are some interesting challenges that the whole industry has ahead of it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, when you say that, I get a lot of my news recommended by my phone, and then you end up, mm. like, you click, on a, you click on an article, you go into it, and it's on, like, the Times or something, and it's behind a paywall. So I'm like, well, thanks, Google, why are you recommending this article? <laughs> um, but, yeah, there's not much I could do, you know, and I usually just typically Google it and find the same article somewhere else without, have, without a paywall. Um, so, you know, mm. I suffer adverts in that regard. Um, but anyway. That's probably one of the other, uh, sorry, I will move on in a second, but that's one of yeah. the other changes in user behavior, I guess, over the last 20 years of consuming news. In the old days, you would, if you were reading something from, you mentioned uh, the Telegraph, I think, or the Times. Yeah. Um, if you were reading something there, you would have picked to buy the Times, and you would go out to the shop and think, I'm a Times reader, I'm going to buy the paper, and then I'll read the Times at home. And these days, because of phones recommending news, aggregators like Apple News and Google News, people are less aware of where the news is coming from and also care less about where the news is coming from. It's things like the headline or the content that are bringing people in. And that's going to make a difference to how people consume news and also how media agencies need to, to present news to people. Yeah, that's very true, because there's less and less loyalty to a particular paper or a particular sort of mm -hmm. point. I suppose that, you know, some certain media agencies have a certain point of view and some people do sign up to that. But then if you're just Googling something quickly on a phone to see the latest headline or something, 
you'll just go into the first article that comes up that seems coherent. Um, yeah. So yeah, it just must be challenging from that regard to try and get people engaged when, you know, like I mean, this is the whole thing of user experience, isn't it? Everything's usable. All of these news articles will be usable. How do you get the be a better experience for your paper over everyone else's? Um, That's which I suppose true, is yeah. a challenge of our times. <laughs> yes, and the other challenge, or I will stop with challenges that news have in a minute. But another oh, this is good fun factor that we can learn when we're talking to people who consume news is that its competitors aren't just other news sites. If someone is on a train reading a news article, the other things they might be doing in that time are playing Candy Crush or WhatsApping their friends. And so finding out how news both fits into that landscape and also competes with things that aren't news, they are games or entertainment or social networks, is another one of the challenges that media has ahead of it. So again, a lot of interesting problem areas for user research to explore. Wow. I mean, this is a whole other podcast, I think, or um, <laughs> a, a, a talk at some point when the industry kind of picks up again. Uh, but yeah, mm. I mean, it, it's a good topic to cover. Um, and I didn't really, you know, when I just saw Reach PLC, I was just like, okay. Uh, but now that you've unpacked it, it's really an interesting place to be part of. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'll, I suppose going back to the theme of the episode, which is building user research teams, uh, you mentioned that when you arrived at Reach, they asked you to build a team from like you and your, on your Todd um, upwards. I mean, had you ever managed a team before or built a team before or was this your first experience with it? Yeah luckily I'd had a similar experience in my previous role so before Reach I was at Parliament in the UK okay. and their context was similar where following the example set by GDS and other public sector services they were very interested in user-centered design and um, employing designers and researchers and product managers and so a Again, I joined as their user research lead with the brief of establish user research as a function inside Parliament. Um, so when I joined Reach, it was a very similar setup where they didn't have an in-house user research team. They were interested in establishing it as a function. And so luckily I could bring that experience that I previously had from Parliament to apply it to Reach. So it's basically, you know, you've kind of, you've already done it once, you've kind of learned the right and wrong ways of doing it, perhaps, and now at Reach, you're kind of doing it again in a more refined way, uh, knowing what yes. boxes you need to tick. I think it's an iterative process. So uh, there were definitely some things that I could have done better when I did it at Parliament. I'm sure there's some things that I could do better at Reach and how we integrate user research into an organisation that's unfamiliar with it. Mm -hmm. um, if I ever get to do it again, again, I'm going to find some ways to overcome some of the issues of sin and yeah iterate and get better at it brilliant i mean that's the, that's the whole point of the uh, user centered design isn't it um yes. great and um so i suppose my next question before we move on to you know some insights around building user research teams was what inspired you to work in our field or your field in the first place like user user research yes um so i studied human centered computing at sussex I kind of ended up there by accident. I didn't have a great affinity, or I was unaware of the field particularly when I went in and ended up picking it uh, almost by chance. Um, one of the first lectures I had was by Graham McAllister, who, oh, yeah. uh, yes, he works in games user research. He founded the company Player Research and before that Vertical Slice. At the time, he was lecturing about human-centered computing uh, at Sussex. He, his lectures exposed to me that, well, both 
the field of user research and usability testing existed, and also that it can apply to, the, to video games, uh, which was something I was personally interested in, and so it sounded fantastic. I, I think that then defined how my career went from then, so I actively sought out opportunities to work in video games user research, uh, I've then, my career then went on to a joint PlayStation and I was with them for five years, which was, again, very good to be with a mature user research team who had a process and they were happy with how it worked. And a lot of what I have learned and applied at other companies since then has been inspired by uh, what I saw from the senior team at PlayStation. Um, so, yeah, I think it was Graham McAllister's lectures that started me off. Wow. So that's just that one person's kind of set, like defined your career going forward. Yes, yeah, quite chance, really. I don't know what I'd be doing else otherwise. Uh, yeah, it's, it's like one of those uh, parallel lines things, you know, you might be in a whole different career. Um, and mm -hmm. it's, good, it's good to hear that, well, it's interesting to hear that uh, even though it was a games user research team, your, your fine, what, what you learned at PlayStation was still applicable to what you're doing in a non-games context. Yes, um, I think in some ways, especially compared to user research in the public sector, um, games has some challenges with research maturity. They're very up and big on usability testing and testing the things after they've been made. Yeah. But for a couple of reasons, perhaps one, the fact that games are an art form and it's difficult to combine an art form with research. Um, they have less, or at least in my career, have been less exposed in games to the role of user research in understanding users and using that to inform design and product decisions rather than just test uh, design and product uh, decisions. Yeah, that makes so sense. There was definitely a lot that I learned about how to run user research and the values of a process, which I think we'll talk about a bit in more depth later. But uh, yeah, there are also new challenges from moving on from games to other industries as well. Brilliant. Um, so before we move on to the topic, is there anything else about your background you wanted to cover or have we kind of uh, touched on all the points we were planning to discuss? I think we've covered everything that I have, I think is relevant to talking about building user research teams. So Brilliant. yes, yeah, I think that's yeah. everything. Great. Okay. Um, so we're sure there's a lot our listeners can learn from your experiences building user research teams. Uh, it'll be great if you could share some of those insights um, that they can apply it themselves. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, starting off, I mean, what is a user research team? I mean, it sounds like a silly question, but it's good if uh, an expert unpacks it for us. No, I guess let's start from the basics. So when we're talking about a user research team, uh, we're describing well, both an individual who runs research themselves. So that can be the person who plans a study, moderates a study, analyzes and debriefs a study. But mm -hmm. there are also other people who you'd consider part of the research team. And this is being increasingly recognized as research ops roles. Uh, things like the re participant recruiter who might go out and find your uh, research, your participants who are gonna take part in research. Uh, mm -hmm or the people who look after a research lab, or people who line manage and help user researchers develop. I know in some organizations they split even that role of a user researcher into more faceted areas. So for example, some the role of a moderator is different to the role of someone who will analyze research findings. Well, now in many, granular. it is very granular. Uh, in many 
small research teams, actually it's only one person who does all of these roles. But I think as teams evolve and as they grow, often the specialisms get identified. And for example, you might then have someone whose role is exclusively hiring the participants or the people who are going to take part in research becomes a specialist role by itself. And then other specialist roles uh, branch off as time goes on. So to answer your question, yeah, a user research team is all of those people who are involved in the user research process. Great. And uh, yeah, like you say, it could be a small team where one person does everything, or it could be a, a big team where every, every single role is separated out and you've got experts in each different facet of the process. Um, mm -hmm. And I suppose you've, you've alluded to this as well just now, but I think it might be good to unpack it. Uh, what does a research, user research team do? So as products or software are being developed, there's a lot of decisions that are being made to inform the development of those products. Those include big decisions early on, such as oh, what should our product do or what features should it have? And then also a lot more nuanced uh, decisions towards the end of development, such as what should this button say or where should we put this tab? Um, the user research team helps people who are making those decisions which are usually designers or product managers or developers uh, UX and UI people they help them find relevant information about their users to inform those decisions so by understanding what people are thinking or people's context when they're using the software that might help inform what are some sensible features or things like usability testing to evaluate um, whether people are using it in the way in which they expect again is useful information to help those other team members your designers your developers uh, to improve the quality of the decisions they make there are often two models that a user research team might work in <coughs> um excuse me sorry <coughs> that's all right so um you can have a user research team who are distinct by themselves and the people they work with are just user researchers and they'll take in briefs for studies and they'll run a test and they'll report back what they've learned. Another model that is very popular is the idea of an embedded researcher. So the researcher goes and sits in the product team. Uh, so they are surrounded by a product manager, a designer, a developer, and they are the sole researcher for that product team. And they will run research uh for that product or that team exclusively the those models both have some pros and cons so uh the idea of having a user research team made up of just user researchers is very strong early on in the development of a user research team because you build up a shared culture and shared knowledge everyone can share their methods and their practices quicker uh, because they're working with other user researchers all the time and it leads to a greater conformity in how research is run which can be very helpful in an organization that's new to research because you need to do a lot of work to help explain how research works and a degree of conformity in your process and how you work can can make it clearer to non-researchers what you're doing um, however it also has some challenges this idea of having a user research a re user research team sat just by themselves because they are not sat with the people who are making these decisions they're not sat with the designers they're not sat with developers every day it's harder to anticipate 
what information they need to know to inform their decisions, especially if they're not coming to you yet with those research questions directly or need some prompting to come up with research questions. Um, often there are there's information that you could learn from a user research study that is relevant to decision makers, but because they don't know the potential of user research or aren't particularly confident with it, they won't think to come to a user research team to ask for help. And so without being sat with those teams, it's very hard to identify those opportunities where research could be helping out and helping improve the quality of the decisions being made. Um, one of the things that the models that I'm exploring currently, and I think a way of bridging this divide between having a focused user research team or embedded researchers inside a multidisciplinary team is by moving towards that embedded model over time. So as a team starts off and is getting established, uh, spending a lot of time within the user research team to define your processes and create your templates and, and describe how research works and do the evangelism work that needs to happen. And then once you have a degree of conformity and quality amongst the researchers, then getting closer to the product teams, increasing the amount of collaborative research you're running, increasing the opportunities to analyze, uh, do collaborative analysis with your product teams or involve them in the, the analysis and the running of research, and then move to that embedded model over time. Um, that helps raise people's understanding and familiarity of research first without tracking researchers in at the deep end. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, so, yeah, the idea of that people start off perhaps as a, a larger group of researchers working mm -hmm. together so they can formalise practice, and then you sort of start to dissipate these guys out into project teams to then evangelise and kind of, you know, um, what's that word? Um, yeah, like like a missionary going out and preaching the gospel. Mm. So you're kind of going out there, you're going into project teams, getting them, making them aware of what what they can do and what they can achieve, but also are learning from the team what they want to, what they need to learn in order to do their jobs better. Um, yeah, so that's I mean, a nice this, way of describing it. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So you're yeah you're evangelising it. Um, so I mean, this kind of nicely answers my next question of where do you use research teams fit within organisations? So I think you've managed to cover that quite well. Um, did you have any other points on that uh, top that topic? Yeah, I guess the there are many, well, there are a couple of places where research can often sit in an org structure. They can sit with design, they can sit with product, they can sit within technology. Um, I guess the important thing for a new user, new user research team is not to be limited by where you sit in the org structure. If our role is to help identify where those business decisions are being made and then run studies that help improve the quality of those decisions. Actually, those decisions happen everywhere. You have designers and UI people making those decisions about the implementation. You've got product managers thinking about how what the product should do. And so making sure that you spend some time to understand where decisions are being made and then are offering your research services to all of these teams, not just the ones who are next to you in the org structure, can be very valuable. I think it's a, a slow process. It involves a lot of one-to-one -one meetings with everyone to understand people's roles, people's responsibilities, what their priorities are. But again, it's one of those important things that can often be overlooked about uh, understanding your team members. But if 
failing to do it will lead to problems further down the line where you realize you're not having the impact that you should be having as a new user research team. Yeah, so, so what you're basically saying there is it doesn't matter where you fit into the, the hierarchical structure of the organization, go out there, learn from or speak to all the people, stakeholders that might be relevant to the design of this digital product, make them aware of mm. your existence so that you can uh, reach further than perhaps you might have done if you just stayed in your lane. Um, yes. Yeah. And I think going back to your previous point about the sort of your, your combined team and your dis distributed team, uh, mm -hmm. One, uh, an organization I worked with in the past, they, they had a hub and spoke model. So I think the hub was basically when the team come together for their meetings and whatever, then the spoke was where they went off and worked uh, in a pro uh, embedded with a project team. So they'd kind of alternate between the two at different stages in order to kind of keep, come back, reflect on practice and go back out again. Um, mm. So, yeah, I mean, that, that could be another way of looking at it in the sense that uh, that way you're getting the best of both worlds. You're being part of a project team, but you're also being able to learn from each other and share best practice before going back out again. Um, yeah, that's so, a great way of managing that, um, the challenges of both models by having a combined model like that. Yeah, great. Um, cool. Um, so uh, I suppose this all sounds good and it sounds like user research teams is a good thing. Uh, but do you think every organization needs one? Yes, that's uh, a good question. So I guess every organization is making decisions. They're deciding about features and they're deciding about implementation. And there's always a need to, to improve the quality of the decisions. So it feels like research studies providing information about users' behavior, users' motivations, and the issues that users have is often very relevant to informing those decisions. It's not the only place that you get relevant information from. Obviously, there's a development team will be informing what the feasibility of implementation. Like, is it easy to build a fix for this? Is it hard to build? That should inform your decision. Uh, and also, there will be people who represent the business who are looking at the financial side of, oh, is this a good business decision to do or is this a bad business decision? So there are, it's not the exclusive team that should help inform these decisions, but it does feel very important. I guess one of the challenges that organization might have is thinking about whether they want to have an in-house user research team or whether they can survive by using external user research agencies instead of having an in-house user researcher. Um, I guess there's no correct answer to that. Some, as someone who works in an in-house user research team, some of the points I might bring up if I was advocating for in-house user research is that as you're running these studies, user researchers learn a lot about their audience, not just the things related to the objectives of the study, but you learn secondary things that are still important to understand, but won't come up in the report. Uh, by having an in-house user research team, you keep a lot of that knowledge in-house and that someone else, someone who works with you, your colleagues, will understand your users in a great deal of depth. By using an external research team, one of the challenges is that actually the person who's getting all that knowledge about your users and is understanding them beyond what's just in a research report is not your colleague and they work somewhere else and your uh, a business will find it difficult to access that information because it's an outside agency um so there are yeah there are reasons why you might want to favor having an in-house user research team over having an external team but I also recognize that that is a 
expensive decision to make first off and often teams will want to use external user research teams as a start to grow their familiarity and convince themselves of the value of running user research before they explore having it as an in-house function. Yeah, um, I was just thinking, it's, uh, is that what you're describing, kind of tacit knowledge? It's kind of this stuff, mm. it's kind of organisational knowledge that's there just because you've done a lot of research with your audience, you kind of know who your audience are. And if you're outsourcing it, then all that tacit knowledge is kind of with the consultant, then they sort of move on to the next project and they forget about it because it's not that important to them. Whereas if you did it in-house, it would be kind of, you know, you'd, you'd all value that as much as the research findings itself. Yes, I think that's exactly it. And actually, that's a, a secondary type of tacit knowledge as well about how to get someone inside the business to care about your decisions. So I'm sure it's very familiar for most user researchers where they run a fantastic study, find some really interesting results, and then are disappointed that no one does anything uh, off the back of them. Yeah. I think over time you can learn why, why am I failing to have an impact and who are the people who are actually making the decisions or where do I need to be to inform those decisions. And being in-house can help a researcher find where those opportunities are to inform decisions a lot easier than it would be for an external team as well. Yeah, so you basically know which people to press and which buttons to push mm. and which, you know, which palms to grease to get things moving. Um, exactly. And you mentioned that some companies might just decide to outsource. Um, do you, you know, have you any idea what companies would, you know, gravitate towards the outsourced model as opposed to the in-house model? Or is, mm. that, you know, is that kind of quite a broad question? Yeah, I don't have a great insight <coughs> into this. I wonder if it will often be older organizations who are less digitally native. I think a lot of startups would think about the idea of user-centered design inherent to how they're working and how they are approaching problems. Uh, they might be following methodologies like lean or other things that encourage testing a lot. And for those teams, they, they would immediately recognize the value of having user research as a core function inside their business. I think older organizations might, who have software development practices that have been formed over decades often, might not immediately recognize the value of research to inform design and might just be thinking about, oh, we should test something after we've built it. And for that kind of study, those testing after you've built it studies, it seems the case for having that run as an outside agency is simpler because they're just testing the thing and they'll come back with a report and that's nice and safe and easy to deal with. So I wonder if it is those organizations who are less familiar with user-centered design who might look at external usability testing as a solution to their problems. Yeah, that makes sense because I'm guessing with these organisations that you just described, you know, doing user testing is the first foray into the world of UX and user research. It's kind of like that's the mm. easy bit that we understand. And then, you know, companies typically can work with them to kind of move them upstream to understand that there's other things they could be doing and, and stuff like that. I mean, not everyone will come with them, but a lot of the time, mm. you know, you might recommend, oh, you know, if you considered test, you know, researching what people want before building the product, because otherwise you might end up with something they don't like and we're just testing something that's not very good or... You know, but yeah, like I suppose everyone needs to start somewhere. If if they're just starting with that, it's something, isn't it? it at least they're engaging the user at some point. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Cool. Um, 
So, I mean, we've, we've kind of covered now, you know, what user research teams are, where they fit within organizations, and you've kind of alluded to your approach to building them. Uh, mm. Perhaps you could unpack now how, how organizations can start to build their own user research teams. Yes. So I think that the role of some of the early user researchers that they join the team, I guess the first step mm -hmm. for an organization is hire a user researcher. Um, the actual role that that person will need to do is quite broad and requires a lot of com uh, to be comfortable with a lot of different parts of evangelizing research or running research. And so presumably someone quite senior to start off with. But the role that that person who joins will have to do is spread, spread across some different levels. On one side, they need to be evangelizing research and talking about here's why user research is a good thing to do, here's why evidence-based decision-making is useful, and promote the idea of running research. Uh, to your point about moving upstream, especially to push for running those strategic projects about run, uh, understanding our audience, as well as just uh, running testing, so they don't fall into the trap of only running testing. Yeah. Alongside that, that first research, high, or some of the early priorities for a research team, as well as evangelizing research, should be understanding the company and understanding where those decisions are made. I talked earlier about meeting with uh, people one-to-one. -one. I would imagine it would involve meet, meeting with all the product managers, meeting with all the designers, meeting with other uh, teams to understand how the organization works currently and where the most impactful place to be for running researchers, research studies would be. Assuming it's an external hire, they have to understand the organization and there's no quick way of doing that other than talking to people. Alongside that role, so as well as evangelizing research, uh, which we can talk about in more depth in a second, mm -hmm. and understanding how the organization works, they also have to be demonstrating the value of research. So that will involve creating the capability for running studies that can include building a usability lab, uh, procuring the any external tools or software that needs to be used setting up how participant recruitment will work either if they're going to do that in-house or if they're going to get an external person to external company to support participant recruitment and then running some high priority or high profile studies so things that immediately demonstrate here's why user research is a good thing to do and here's the value of doing it often those early studies can be usability testing studies those seem like they are easier for an organization to understand. It's obvious when you run a study and you learn, oh, actually no one knew what to click on to buy our product, that there's a problem and that this study has been worthwhile and that we can fix that problem and there's an immediate business or financial gain from that. So that can be a really good project to demonstrate it, but not forgetting about those other strategic projects as well. So making sure the organization is recognizing the value of understanding its audience better and how that can fit into their development process and then running some of those studies as well to show the value of running both types of user research not just the testing cool so i mean yeah to un unpack that it sounds like this mm. isn't a job for a junior this is a job for someone that's been around for a while that knows how to handle all these different tasks um just so that when they go there they can hit the ground running and they know they know a, how to do these things themselves and how to get the other people to do it for them 
they know the right time for people to speak to etc it's not a it's not a role for someone that's straight out of university or if it is that it might be a smaller organization in which case they've got the room to grow with it perhaps yeah i think there's a risk where and it's uh, probably a risk that i have fallen into myself or a, a problem that i've uh, caused to happen where if you focus on only one aspect of this so you're only running studies and you're not talking about the benefits of running user research yeah you will over time recognize that you're failing to have the impact that research should have and that you're not informing decision making and so after six months or a year or however long it takes you might realize that oh actually there's been a gap because i haven't done this other part of the role and so tackling all of these is very important for a, a new user research team yeah, so it's important not just to be doing the job, but also making people aware of why you're doing the job in the first place and mm. also sort of doing that upstream work of kind of, you know, okay, we've done some user testing, you can see the value in that. You know, if you're a, a sort of a established organisation that doesn't have personas or doesn't understand who their users are, maybe start defining them to help them understand, oh, actually, oh, we're actually designing for that person, we're not just designing for everyone or such and such, because mm -hmm. I'm guessing the readers of a regional newspaper in the north of England might be different to uh, a suburban newspaper in London or something. It's kind of, you know, you might need to do that research in your current role to kind of unpack these different audience types and what their needs are. Um, and I guess if an organisation is not currently doing that, they're just relying on statistics, it will make it harder for them to make design decisions. I think that's exactly right. I guess also with that strategic work, there's always the risk of it not appearing relevant or creating personas that don't find the useful information that's actually helpful to uh, decision making. So, for example, focusing on the demographics of those audiences as opposed to their motivations or their behaviour. And again, falling into those reasonably common research uh, traps will impact people's perceptions of research over time. And as a new team, you've got to be demonstrating the value of it with every project you run and making sure that you're really driving home the points of this is why it's valuable and this is why we're doing it. Yeah, so if you've spent a lot of time and money and effort creating these personas but then they're not actually actionable, um, mm. it's going to leave a bad taste in the mouth of your sponsors um, you know, within the organisation and kind of get them to question your capabilities, I suppose. Yes, yeah, exactly. Great. Uh, I mean, not, that's not great, obviously, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, the insights are great. Um, so I think you've touched on some of these bits, but I kind of, I'll go through the list to see if there's anything else you want to mention. What do you think the mm -hmm. key steps are that people should follow when they're establishing their uh, user research team? Yes. So I mentioned evangelism. Mm -hmm. One, I think that's very important at the beginning. So after a new user researcher has been hired, um, running, well, there are a number of ways you can approach this. Some that I've explored before include running presentations where you talk about the basics of here's what user research is, here's how it fits into your current development process, here's some of the methods and here's some of the research uh, findings that we might get from those methods and this is how you apply it. Alongside the presentation there's other things you need to be doing to make people aware that your team exists and that you're doing helpful things. Mm. Um, that can include real world artifacts, things like posters and putting things up GDS have done a great job of this, and I know a lot of their posters are public where they're using posters to just promote the benefits of using data to inform decisions, uh, create awareness about the differences between uh, the type of people who are making software and the actual and their users. 
promoting those basic principles of user experience and user research is something that's very important and poses as a way of achieving that. I a great idea. I've not, I, I, you know, I mean, now that you mention it, you see the GDS stuff all the time, but you don't consider that it, when that's put up in an office, it'll kind of be, you know, people, it will just kind of soak into people as osmosis. You kind of see everywhere, oh, you know, consider the user, where does the user, you know, yeah, that's, that's genius. Yeah, ideally it wants to be a gateway to something else. So um, what we have explored doing with posters is then referencing where you can find out more information. So another thing that you can do as part of evangelism is set up like an internet site or internal team site, which can both promote the values of user research and explain what it is and explain how it works, but also be a repository for here's where you keep all, all our findings and all the information if you want to find a specific report. And so using posters, making sure that your posters are also pointing people towards where they can find out more can be a step to getting people interested who wouldn't encounter it through other ways. They wouldn't turn up to one of your presentations. They wouldn't observe a usability session with unprompted, but they might be intrigued when you're sharing individual insights or promoting the values of user research through real world posters and just stuff going in by osmosis, as you say. Yeah, and, and that would prompt them to go out and look into this stuff. And I suppose if you've got analytics on your portal, you can see how many people are engaging with it. So you can kind of see what, what the build-up is in the organisation. Yeah. That sounds uh, a bit big brother. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> another part of evangelism, I guess, is being where our users are. And as a user research team, our users are our colleagues, the people who are making decisions. We want to understand where they are, where they're making those decisions, and then be there at the right time. What that actually looks like for a lot of the, uh, at least in my experience, is being very active on internal comms tools like Slack or Teams or wherever uh, organizations are having those development and design discussions and making sure that you are both promoting your work there, but also following the conversations that are going on. And when there's relevant discussions happening where you could run a research study or you might already have a research finding that's relevant um, piping up on those internal comms tools and saying look actually we already know the answer to this and it's here so yeah active communication as well oh that's good so monitoring the internal chatter and basically sounding out when uh, you you've got the answer to a question that they're throwing out there um, just mm -hmm. to kind of prove prove that you've you've been doing this stuff and you're relevant and you've got your you know insights and basically to make sure the insights are being used as opposed to just being forgotten yeah exactly um Please. your question was about what steps should they follow so yeah as, as well as the evangelism there's also a lot of prep work that uh organization needs to do or a researcher needs to do before they can run their first study they need to have the hardware that they can run usability testing or interviews or um yeah run studies and so making sure that they have the right microphones that they can record, they have the right AV setup that they can stream it, they have the right software so that they can test on a mobile device and have it mirrored to a desktop device so that people can watch it. Um, all of that requires some setup for, to get the tech in place. Mm -hmm. And there's also templates as well. So a lot of how a research team works is a repeatable process and every time they will start by having a research brief they will then write a 
a screener that will help identify here's the participants we're after. They might then write the discussion guide or a template for taking notes and presumably debrief their findings in some sort of report. All of that, because it's a very similar thing that happens every time a round of research is run, can be templated. But that first job is to make those templates so that they, a researcher can then use them when they're running studies. So I guess making sure that a new user researcher has both the time and the budget to do this prep work before they have to run a study is also an important step early on for a new user research team. Yeah, because if they're running around, uh, you know, trying to get the license to a recording software the day before testing, that's going to stress them out. And they're not going to be focusing on, you know, the actually important part of doing the testing. Um, exactly. Great. Um, so that sort of was touching there on the resources required as well, wasn't it? Um, can mm. you think of any other resources apart from sort of software licenses and templates that people might need? Mm. So I guess a common challenge that organisations have is also just the space to run research. I think in a lot of places, having a, a room can be quite hard to, to get because meeting rooms are scarce and there's a lot of um, demand on that space. And ideally, a researcher would want two rooms, not just the room that they can test in, but also an observation room so that you can run nice activities with your teams where they can observe sessions and do some sort of collaborative note taking exercise or do some sort of active things, not just observing the session uh, remotely at their desk. That, yeah. again, can be very difficult and requires quite a lot of senior buy-in to get even one room, let alone two rooms, dedicated to a user research setup. And so making sure that happens is probably an important resource as well for a new user research team. Great. Um, yeah, so space is a big thing, especially in larger organisations. Um, and so I suppose the next two questions are going to be kind of related. Um, what do you think is the minimum people to start a user research team and who might be the key hires? Yes, that's a good point. So I guess in real life, often it's only a solo researcher who is hired to start off with. There's only one person and they have to do all of this. Yeah. Uh, because as we've covered, there's a huge breadth in the things that a new user researcher team has to do. That, as you identified earlier, that has to be someone reasonably senior. So they are comfortable with setting up a lab. They're comfortable with promoting user research and evangelizing it. They're comfortable with creating all these templates and the, the processes that need to happen for research to occur. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, I guess starting with one person is definitely feasible. Although if you uh, have other researchers, again, you can share that load and perhaps with one lead person leading it, they can, uh, other researchers can be given discrete tasks and be very helpful early on. I guess the first non-research, non-dedicated research hire might be looking at participant recruitment, because that is often a thing that takes a lot of time for a researcher to do. And it's a different skill set to planning, moderating and analysing studies. It's a skill set of phoning people up and screening people and checking they're the right kind of person and scheduling an entirely different skill set. Um, from seeing how others in the research ops community have handled this, they often say it's not worthwhile getting a dedicated person to do that role until you have 
perhaps four or five researchers running studies just so there's enough work for someone who does participate in recruitment to do it full time. But a nice halfway house that a lot of teams look at is by using external participant recruitment companies. So there are dedicated companies who, when given a brief, will go and find your participants and will schedule them to come in. And so maybe that can supplement it until your team is of a size that you can have a dedicated participant recruiter. Um, to answer your question about key hires, then I think it's starting with a really senior user researcher supported by other user researchers until you reach a team of about four or five and then starting looking at some of those specialist roles we talked about earlier. Cool. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I get totally get the whole thing about re, re, um, sorry, recruitment. Um, mm. Yeah, when you try and take that on yourself whilst doing another, another project at the same time, it just becomes a, a massive challenge. Um, so, you know, I, I'm still in the stage where we use external companies and it seems to go quite well. Um, but I'm guessing if you've got a particularly niche uh, client base or, you know, if you want to have that knowledge in-house and having that dedicated person uh, would help going forward, wouldn't it? But like you say, it needs to be a large enough team to make that worthwhile. Yes. One of the things that I often wish I had an in-house participant recruiter to help with is when we're doing internal projects. So looking at internal business tools that are used within organizations because all the participants are going to be your colleagues it doesn't really feel like the sort of thing an external participant recruiter would be able to do because you're in a much better place to get hold of your colleagues than uh, the external participant recruiter would be but there's still a lot of scheduling work and back and forth about communication that it would be really great to get a specialist to look at rather than being part of a, a user researcher's role and so I can see it'd be especially value, valuable if you're running a lot of those internal research projects. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I mean, did you have any, any other points on this before we um, move on to sort of, you know, growing teams? Yeah, I think, um, so we've talked about the key hires, we talked about the, the lab setups. I guess another part of the resources that is very important is organizations recognizing that they need to have a budget to do a lot of these studies and to really make user research effective because a lot of things we've talked about do have some costs so for example the software and the hardware is will have a cost to buy and hiring user researchers obviously has a cost and also to get the right participants you normally need to incentivize them you need to pay them some money to turn up um, which again has a cost I think a lot of organizations might, uh, well, I think organizations need to understand is what those costs will be and make sure that they are prepared for the type of budget user research will require. Often they'll look at compromises. So, for example, not paying participants to uh, who take part in research and just using friends or just using existing customers who they quite like or using some research methods that can be cheaper such as unmoderated remote user research tools such as usertesting.com but many of these are a false economy i think is the word where although you're saving money early up on actually the effectiveness and the relevance of your research findings is critically impacted and then you're failing to have the positive impact on business decisions that that user research team could be having yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, a lot of the times I quote for a job and then, you know, there's the sort of the, the, the 
you know, the, uh, you know that people give you a budget, so then you quote mm. the actual work to the budget, and then the bit about participant incentives takes it over the budget. It, literally, you mm. couldn't do it without that those incentives. So it's kind of quite frustrating when people don't realise the actual cost of these things. And then I've been on projects where they were like, oh yeah, we've got a friend of the, the CEO to come in to test it for us because, you know, he's familiar with this. And it's like you say, it's kind of like, yeah, great. You've got a human being in the seat and it's a step up from no one, I suppose. But in in the mm-hmm. sense that they're, they're going to be too nice about it or they're going to be know too much about it. So they're not actually going to be challenged by the tasks and things like that. So you really lose the value. And um, yeah, with the remote unmoderated sessions, you, you know, you can't guarantee that you're going to get the right kind of participants to respond to mm. it. And you're not going to guarantee that you can get the right insights from it. So, yeah, I, I totally see that. And I, I suppose teams know, you know, organizations need to recognize that this stuff does cost. And it's not just buying, mm. about buying a Camtasia license and a laptop and sending someone out into the world uh, to buy people coffee and get some insights. It's kind of, you know, there's a whole lot more to it than that. Yeah, which brings us back to the evangelism point. So organizations new to research often have low experience with research and low maturity and so won't know what the problems are with using the CEO's friend or just going to a coffee shop and so again a researcher needs to be making sure they're explaining this and addressing uh, these misconceptions as part of establishing a new user research team. Yeah genius Um, so now that you've got your team established and you've got your key hires and things what are the next steps? Like, how do the people then scale up or, you know, improve mm. what they're, they're doing? So, I, as I alluded to a little bit earlier, um, user research is often a semi-structured process in that you do the same steps. You do uh, a meeting with a team to define some research objectives. You then write a discussion guide and you recruit your participants and you run a study and then you do some analysis and you debrief it and recognizing that that is a process can be very helpful to both define how you work and then recognize where those bits are failing or could be improved and also communicating that to other hires so if someone new joins the team explaining to them oh, this is how research works here, and here's how we do it, and here's our templates, and here's how we uh, how it works. When I was at PlayStation, um, I worked very closely with David Tisserand, who wrote a chapter about the research process for the book Games Use Research. And a lot of what he talked about was the idea of having a research checklist. So for every study, you have a, a checklist that says, here's the process and here's how it works. The checklist... I think it shouldn't be prescriptive. It shouldn't say you have to work in this way and you have to do these things in this order, but it's a, a backbone for research where it contains our current best practice or current best understanding of how research works. And then if you do decide to deviate from here's the process for research, you should recognize why you have deviated and then think about is there anything about why we did this differently or how we did this differently it should be folded back into our process and we recognize that oh actually uh, we found this was a much better way of doing it and so we should bring it into the process so that other researchers can learn from it and can apply it to their own work so one of the things that David talks about is at the end of every study doing some sort of continual improvement exercise where you have a meeting about 
the with inside the research team about how that round of research went, what went well and what didn't work well about those different stages, about prep, about um, note taking, about analysis, about debrief, and then identify some actions that you can do to address the things that didn't work well or think about the things that did work well, how can we fold them into our research process? And so over time, build up a uh, deeper description of how research works. This has some, uh, I've lost my words, it has, because if you want to do this process of describing how research works, making a checklist, making some templates that uh, capture some of the best practice or prompt researchers to think about the right things. Um, you need somewhere to store it and a way for researchers to get it at the relevant time. So again, this implies some work about defining how we store our, our research process, how we store our documents, how are we making sure that researchers have access to them at the right time. But exploring all of these things about how does research work and make it a continual optimi uh, optimizing process is one of the most impactful things I think research teams can do to help improve as they as they work. Great. So it's about being reflective practitioners and con constantly mm. improving the process based on on whatever they're learning from every project. Um, and I suppose you mentioned a checklist then. I'm guessing there might have been a template in the book, but these checklists really shouldn't be something you download online and just apply to your organisation. It should be designed based on your needs. I mean, there's probably some steps that are you know, the same or, you know, everyone pretty much does a project mm. the same way, but it's going to be custom depending on everyone's organisation, like who you need to speak to, what do you need to ask, you know, um, you know, what's your take What's your take on that? Like, it's it's not like a cookie cutter approach, is it? It should be customised to a, to a team. I think that's exactly right. I think although there's some broad things that could be generic for everyone, by reviewing it after each round of research, it's going to very quickly diverge and become very specific to your organisation about oh, actually, here's who we need to inform when we're going to run around to research. Here's where we post information about viewing it. Here's where we uh, put our reports after they have been debriefed. Here's uh, a template for how we uh, share the report after. All of that becomes very bespoke as you start to evaluate what works for your organisation and what doesn't work for your organisation. Great. I mean, all of this stuff you're bringing out now is just really like, you know, like I kind of loosely did this when I set up the lab, but as the lab is basically mm. just me, um, you know, there's <laughs> only so much I need to formalize. But, you know, when I work with the student consultants, I kind of have to kind of give them the templates and how we do things and the process that we follow and stuff. So, it's a, you know, it, this stuff does, you know, it, it is the same regardless, but it's kind of it is very custom to where you are. So, yeah. Great. Yeah. And I think over time, the senior researcher will presumably rely on a checklist less and will be a lot more confident making decisions that go off the process and applying their own expertise to do different things. But as you say, it can be a very useful teaching tool or to create some continuity between how different researchers approach a problem. It can help create that shared awareness of best practice across a team. And what do you think is the bonus of that continuity? Like, why do you think that was a benefit? Mm, that's a good point. I, I guess every researcher has a different, well, both a different degree of experience, but also different experiences. So they might have had more experience with specific methods or specific 
approaches than other researchers on the team. If everyone is collaboratively working on one process for this is how we do it and this is how it works, it hopefully brings in everyone's expertise into the same place. And so regardless of which individual researcher is running that study, they're taking advantage of the expertise of all those other researchers who might be more familiar with it or might have um, yeah, had positive experiences that they want to share. So it helps every individual researcher take advantage of the knowledge of all the people that, uh, on the across the whole user research team. Cool. So it's kind of creates a level playing field where like, mm. you know, everyone's kind of uh, has the same base not level of knowledge that they can apply to projects. And I mm -hmm. suppose from an organizational standpoint, it's probably good because the report from one researcher is not going to be completely different to a report from another researcher. So it means it's easier for them to digest and understand what's being communicated and things like that. Yes, and it will create questions, I guess, about the quality of, of the work if you're getting completely different results from different people for a similar brief. Presumably yes. one might be better, one might be worse, and you don't want people to start questioning the quality of the work being done. Yeah. So, yeah, by being consistent, it's kind of make sure that everything is this, you know, appears the same, it's reported the same. So that organizations can be confident that the team's producing the same quality of output throughout, um, mm. et cetera. Great. Um, so I, I'm conscious that we've kind of mentioned a few of the next points already. Mm -hmm. um, are there any of them that you want to kind of expand on um, or do you want to move on to the, ne the next section? Um, so we talked about the templates and we talked about processes um yeah we I mean, could next... talk about logistics sorry go on yeah so yeah i mean logistics was the next one if if there's a yeah if you want to unpack that that'd be great and um, so yeah. what what logistics do teams need to consider yeah so um we talked about the importance of that first a uh, few months as a research team that there is a lot of pre-work that needs to happen before uh, a round of research can be run. And I guess the main logistic consider when you're actually in that cycle and that cadence of running research is every research study you run has an opportunity cost. It might take two weeks or it might take uh, a month to run an individual study. And while you're doing that study, you are not doing other studies you have to pick what is the highest priority thing that we can be working on and we have to let the other projects either wait or go without research so one of the very important things for a new user research team as we touched on already is making sure that they are picking the highest priority projects to work on and that they're putting their time into the right place so there are a number of factors I think a research uh, should be considering when they're deciding, is this the right project to work on? And that can include, does the product team have time to react to the findings? If they find that something is, is not working or not going to work, are they actually in a place to do anything about it or will they just carry on regardless? Um, what is the business value of, of this study? So does it have an enormous financial impact on the on the organization as a whole or is it a secondary thing that actually no one cares if it works or it doesn't work and i guess also the capability for the research team is this a thing that we have the methods and the expertise to do a good job of answering at this time 
or is it something that might be more appropriate for a market research team or something that we can support a product team to run themselves? I think making sure that a research team is under, thinking about all these facets when they're picking what projects we should be doing or what research questions we should be answering is very important because of that logistical, we can only run a study or two studies every month and so we have to be prioritising heavily. It's one of the most important things for a research team to consider. Oh wow, I hadn't even considered that. So the idea that, you know, be a, accepting the highest priority work as opposed to sort of just running, you know, stuff that does, isn't really important, turning away stuff that isn't relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a juggling act of tr- not trying to please everyone not trying to take too much on when you know that you're going to, you know, not, not be able to give it your fullest attention. Um, mm. Yeah. Just kind of, yeah, just pick, well, taking on the projects that will bring the biggest value to your organization and that you know that you can do well um, mm-hmm. and not, not just for your benefit, but for your organization's benefit. It's not just because you want to look good. It's because you want to give them the most value for the team that they've got available. I'm guessing. Yeah. Although looking good is also very important. For new yeah. Team. Yeah. So it's kind of, you know, get those quick wins and then once the team expands you might be able to take on a few other projects as long as they're not marketing focused or whatever or stuff that like you said the product uh, managers could perhaps do themselves Mm. um yeah uh yeah i hadn't even imagined that as a sort of logistics uh thing to consider um Mm. okay and i think you've mentioned this before but it might be worth unpacking again how can teams Mm -hmm. raise awareness within their organizations so you mentioned yeah. posters and sort of a shared area. Were there other things at road shows? I think you mentioned or, or, or workshops. Is there anything else that you could cover or, or that people should consider? Yeah, I guess uh, another thing to think about or a principle about it is being very open about all the research that's happening and creating a lot of opportunities for people to get exposed to it. So one thing that we're doing currently is uh, every round of research we are streaming it across the organization so that anyone can watch that session from their desk, as well as having the space for obviously the product team who has asked for that research can book a dedicated meeting room and watch it together. But we're also making sure that everyone's aware that it's occurring and that they can watch it themselves. Uh, Also, same as streaming, sharing videos and sharing reports very widely afterwards. I guess one of the, uh, we touched on this right at the beginning, but as a user researcher, you're not just learning the things that the study's about. So even though the product team have commissioned a study and you're looking at a specific aspect of user behavior, actually during that study, you're going to notice five other things that aren't a research objective, but are still useful or relevant to understand and to share. And so making sure that we are sharing that widely beyond that primary audience of the team of asked for the study to that secondary audience of people who this would still inform their decisions if they were aware it was there, but they're just not aware it's occurring is uh, very valuable through streaming and sharing videos and sharing reports. Yeah, because I think I've done a number of projects for of the same client. And I think with that, you kind of get this tacit thing come up um, over and over again and I think you know even though it, I'm not part of their team because I've been doing it so much and I've been going on repeated projects I would start to learn some of this stuff that was coming through and so I was feeding that back alongside the regular report and I think they appreciated the fact that you, you did that extra level 
So it's not just mm. about, oh, you know, the user said this and they managed to complete the task and they had a wonderful experience. It was also, oh, by the way, your branding wasn't perceived in the right way and uh, it didn't particularly look like you as an organization compared to all the other touch points they've seen, which isn't necessarily about that particular project, but it's about other things. So I think, like you say, by being mindful of that allows people to, you know, your research have a wider impact. And the idea of streaming to everyone's desk is great because then, you know, like you said, as people that might not be otherwise engaged or uh, motivated to go to a dedicated um, session uh, could mm. still tap, uh, step in as and when they need to, or, or you know, based on their interest. Um, to share that via Slack or Teams or whatever, I suppose it depends on the organisation, doesn't it? But yes, yeah, exactly. As long as you're consistent. So uh, we use Slack in every round of research. We uh, trail it a few days before saying we're going to be doing this round of research. You'll be able to watch it from your desk. Uh, it will be this URL. And then on the day saying, here's the session times, here's where it's happening, come and watch. And then encouraging a conversation about it in Slack as well, so that it creates a space for people to reflect on, on what they've observed, even if they're not the team who is observing the research, who has requested the research. So do you have a dedicated member of your team like engaging with the wider stakeholders through Slack so to manage uh, that conversation perhaps? Yeah, that would be nice. I think we currently don't have enough people to do it, but it feels like a great area that uh, as a team grows, it could grow into doing. Uh, I can see the value in that. Yeah, because you've got the moderator in the observation room that kind of you know gets those guys uh, engaged with each other. So I suppose the mm -hmm. conversation in Slack is similarly moderated. You could get similar outputs from it. But uh, but I'm guessing if they're talking to each other, they could still learn you know from the sessions anyway. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, no, that's a really good observation, though. Um, something to explore. Great. Um, and you mentioned um, you know getting as many people engaged as possible. Um, so who mm. should who should teams be working closely with as they as they grow? Yes. So I guess early on, a lot of the types of testing that people imagine happens is about implementation. So you'll be working very closely with designers who or a design team who have designed the thing that is being tested, or a product team who are thinking about. Uh, how much time do we need to dedicate to this? Is it a focus? Is it working? Should, uh, should we work further on this feature? And so the design and the product teams are often the first teams you'll be working very closely with. But over time, especially when you're thinking about the more strategic projects, those decisions get made at a, at a different level. They're often a uh, more senior level, like a director level, who are making decisions about the future priorities of the business or what areas we should explore for the next year. And again, a user research team believes that they have a lot of relevant information that can inform those decisions. And so making sure that you have an appropriately senior audience for those strategic work, uh, piece of work, can be very valuable as well. Yeah, so I'm guessing by the time it gets down to the, the, the actual product teams, the decision's already been made. So you're just sort mm. of, you know, assisting with something that's already been decided upon. If you start moving upstream and engaging with the sort of uh, director level, you can then inform the decisions they're making in the first place and ideally mm. through user research. Um, yeah, so it's make, about making those guys aware that you exist and what you can, what you can offer them in order to kind of raise their, 
or you know expand their ideas or expand their mind and the kind of ideas they come up with rather than them sort of decreeing something based on what their competitors are doing or something yeah exactly great um uh any more any more on that topic before we move on uh i think the i think that's all i occurs to me immediately about the teams that we're working closely with although obviously everyone is making implementation decisions so not forgetting those other audiences like developers or uh, other teams who who are making decisions about how a thing should work or what it should look like yeah so it's it's kind of you still need to engage with the guys building the thing as well as guys mm. strategically deciding what's going to be built in the first place mm. um, and as teams grow what challenges should people be aware of um, as they're building user research um, teams yeah um, we've talked a bit already about picking appropriate projects I guess it's very easy to get swept up with the tactical testing of testing things that have got built and yeah. as people get excited about user research they will start coming to you with requests for testing, which is a great position to be in. But it's often the case that the capacity of your research team doesn't necessarily, we can't run every test and we have to pick what are the most impactful tests to do. Yeah. Um, those strategic projects, understanding our audience, they might not be coming to you as requests because no team has a specific question about why do people consume news? every team is thinking about their product. How, so it's not gonna to come to you as a thing that you have to prioritize yourself, uh, as in prioritize someone else's request. That makes a risk of it being forgotten about or not run or continually pushed back because there is a stream of tactical work coming in. However, it's the sort of thing where if you fail to run those big strategic projects, it, over a course of years, so after maybe uh, three or five years, you're slowly missing opportunities as a business to take advantage of changes in user behavior that if you had understood users better earlier on, you could make different strategic decisions and you could uh, be meeting user needs that you weren't aware existed. And so we'll have a drag on the performance of the business over time. So one of the challenges, I guess, for a new user research team is making sure they are dedicating time, even though no one is asking for these strategic projects, to make sure that they occur, to push back some of those tactical tests and ultimately prove the business value of understanding your users better. Yes, it's about carving out the time to do the things that's important for the business, even though the business might not appreciate it at the time. Um, and being tactical with who you, what you choose to what other projects you choose to do um yeah make sure yeah managing your workload so that you can achieve things rather than being overwhelmed with stuff that's in the long run might not prove as much valuable as that more strategic work that's it and that's why a lot of those road shows and, and the evangelism work that we've discussed can be a valuable ally in helping convince people that it's worth doing these kind of studies and if they even if they don't have immediate business output you don't immediately after that report, make a change to your software. Um, helping people understand that growing a body of knowledge about your users will lead to long-term change is a technique to help avoid the risk of not running those kind of studies. Yeah, so the roadshows are about kind of um, making people aware of user-centered design and the value of understanding the user in, in the design of products. 
Mm. Yeah. Cool. Um, and da -da -da -da. so I think that covers a lot about you know, building a team and the challenges involved. Um, I suppose the next thing to discuss, and I'm very excited to do so, is your book, um, which is basically oh, yes. covering everything that we've just discussed. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, you've recently written a book called Building User Research Teams, um, which covers a lot of what we discussed. How did this come about? Yes, so it was a topic that I, I was unaware if a book currently exists that covers exactly this. There's a lot of really good books about how to run user research or um, going deep specifics about some methods, but one about all those steps of implementing a new user research team, creating the templates, creating the checklist, defining the process, I didn't think existed currently. As I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to uh, do that a few times, both at Parliament and at REACH, it felt like a topic that I could say something about or I could be documenting, here's how we're approaching it and here's some of the things that have gone well and here's some of the things that haven't worked out. And so it felt like it was something valuable for the, the community, uh, which is why I decided to write about it. Great. So it's kind of you've you've faced these challenges a couple of times. You looked out there for mm. a book about it. You realised it didn't exist. So you thought you'd 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 make it yourself. Yeah, um, I was very lucky that because I was with PlayStation for a while, and because they did have a very mature research practice, a lot of how I work and how user research team can work, I learned from the senior team there. Uh, which I think was a great opportunity. I, the challenge is, of course, not everyone has that same chance to work with quite so mature team before they're thrown in the deep end of start doing user research. And so writing some of it down was very helpful. Yeah, so it kind of it unpacks all this stuff that we mentioned earlier that goes beyond just doing the research. It's kind of how to embed yourself in an organisation, how to mm. make people aware of what you're doing, how to set up these processes and et cetera. Um, how long did it take you to write the book? Yeah, about a year, I would say, in total. So I think I was writing it alongside doing that kind of work at Reach, where I started about a year ago. Um, a lot of that, though, was editing and revision. So probably six months of serious writing and then another six months to get it in a state so that anyone would want to read it. Nice. So, I mean, it, you know, it's quite a long time, but it's not that, you know, it's not like sort of, um, you know, it. it it's achievable, it sounds like. Sort mm -hmm. of thing. And what was your process of getting it published? Yes, so it's a self-published book. I started by speaking to some publishers, and I think a lot of them were interested in the book about user research, but felt that this specific angle, the logistics of setting up a team, was too niche to be supported by a publisher. It's not the sort of thing that's going to be useful to an audience of, of millions or even particularly thousands. There's probably only hundreds of people who, for whom they're in the situation where this book might be relevant to them or they might have to apply it. Um, so after speaking to publishers, uh, one of them recommended self-publishing. And so I looked into people's experience with self-publishing. And a lot of people were very positive about it. They said that uh, the process has been very easy. They've got great feedback. Um, I use a thing called Amazon's KDP to publish it. And they handle a lot of the process of the actual creation of the book and the putting it on Amazon so people can buy it. 
and again my experience was very positive with it it was ex- very simple and yeah nice to to do it sounds great and like i mean a lot of things are self-published these days isn't it so it's kind of like you know you know your audience you know your what they need just because mm. uh, a larger publisher didn't see the sort of mass scale of it it's all about getting those insights out and it's about getting this uh, off your chest really isn't it it's kind of putting it out into the world so other people don't have to uh, struggle for the similar process that you you know you might have done if you hadn't have had that experience at playstation i think exactly that so uh, what some of the larger publishers might be interested in is a book about user research studies and how to uh, run a user research study but there are a lot of good books that out there already that do that so i want to do something a bit different yeah, no, I mean, that's the irony, isn't it? You'd think that they'd want to snatch the book that's completely different to all the other books on the market <laughs> because it would stand out. But hey, um, and uh, so uh, have you ever published anything before or like written any more book, any books before this one? Yeah, before this, I've I, uh, written a couple of book chapters. So I mentioned earlier the Games User Research book uh, because oh, yeah. I mentioned David's chapter in it. Uh, I also wrote a chapter in there about interviewing uh, people as part of user research studies so some guidance on how to run interviews and play tests um, I'd also previously had a book chapter published about my master's dissertation because that uh, featured the conference and they wrote a book based on the conference right. uh, so I guess the difference being though when you're doing a chapter you only see part of the process of you write one chapter and you go through a couple of revisions of editing um, but it, it's it was a different ball game doing it for a book as a whole. Yeah, I mean, now that you've done it once, are you considering doing any doing it again? Yes, it hasn't put me off the idea. I think when I work out another subject that I might have unique insight on, and a book doesn't exist already, I I would definitely consider doing it again. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought I'd spend some time on this section because I find the idea, whole idea of publishing a book very exciting. So I think it's, mm. it's quite quite cool to actually speak to someone that's done it. Um, I mean, do you have response? a do you have a book uh, in you? Uh, I've got well various novels in me, but I don't want to. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, we'll, we'll discuss that offline. I think this is uh, yeah, <laughs> Fair but that's yeah, that's um, yeah. I've told enough people in my office about it. They're, yeah, but it's uh, yeah. Uh, Thrillers, dinosaurs, you know, it's, it's kind of Jurassic Park, but you know, or another one which is kind of like a one day a 1984 uh, thing. But uh, yeah, we'll uh, I'll leave it at that. I'll tantalize. I look everyone. forward to reading them. Yeah, uh, yeah, one of them shouldn't be that long. But anyway, um, and and what kind of response have you received to your your book now that it's out there? Yes, it's been well positive so far, which is nice. Everyone said very nice things about it, um, at least to my face, and I haven't heard people not saying it to my face, so that's good. Um, one of the challenges, I guess, with writing a book is it's hard to tell what your peers' reception would be until it exists. And so it's been nice as it's uh, started getting out there and being shared by user researchers who I respect that they have said nice things. That's been very positive. And yeah, it's also um, selling okay. So all positive. Yeah. So. That's good. Um, I mean, yeah, we'll kind of share Steve's details on the podcast so people can see if they're interested in the book, they can find it. Um, did you did, just out of interest, did you show it to anyone whilst you were writing it to kind of get feedback from a peer that you respect so that you can kind of tell that you're on the right track? Mm, I didn't, which I think is poor practice because I think it's a good idea to to run 
books by people and I think that's a common thing to do um I was too impulsive and didn't particularly want to uh, wait so I did uh get editors to help work on the spelling and the grammar and the actual wording of it but a lot of the the content I didn't do any sort of a preview or pilot or anything like that yeah, so I think I self-published a comic once and I didn't get anyone to read my scripts and I just sent them to the artists. And afterwards, people were like, why didn't you get anyone to read your scripts? You should have done a sort of user-centred approach to your comic, um, yes. which is kind of, you know, it's one of those things, isn't it? Um, I think we cool. should both practice what we preach. And exactly, yeah. Yes. Well, we've learned that for next time. Um, and yeah, so apart from any future books, is there anything else that you're working on next? Yeah, I guess a thing that has yet to be done is in the book it uh you mentioned templates earlier the book yeah. implies a number of templates and talks about the value of templating a lot of the research process i haven't yet made those templates and so my next focus will be making those templates and also sharing them on the book's website oh, so okay. that people who are interested in seeing a template for a discussion guide or a template for here's what a report looks like or a template for his screener to find participants can have a thing to refer to. So it's like an addendum that people can access online once they've read the book. Exactly. Yes. Cool. Um, yeah, but I'm, I'm sure once you know, once you put your you know knuckle down, they they won't take. I mean, I suppose it would be quite difficult to produce them because you've kind of got to make them as agnostic as possible. You know, so it's kind of it's got to be a vanilla template that could be applied to lots of things or that could be quickly tailored. So I suppose that's been yeah. the challenge at the moment. It's going to be a template of a template, which is quite meta. Yeah. But if if anyone could do it, I'm sure you can. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so I, th I think that covers all the topics we had had down. I mean, was there anything else you wanted to discuss before we close? No, I think that's everything from me. Um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk today. It, I think it's been a, a nice chat. So thank you. Yeah, brilliant. And, and thanks you so much for taking your time to talk to me. I mean, it's uh, lots of useful insight has come out of this and I'm sure our audience will appreciate it. Um, yeah, that's the, you know, um, thanks again. And I look forward to speaking to someone else uh, next month. Thanks a lot, Steve. Oh, thank you.